Welcome to the Think Like Amazon podcast, the show where I sit down with former Amazon executives to discuss Amazon's unique principles and processes and tease out how you can apply them to grow and manage your business. I'm Tyler Wallace, a seven-year former Amazonian, current brand consultant, and your host as we learn to think like Amazon. Welcome to the Think Like Amazon podcast. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Steve Frazier to the show. Steve spent over 20 years as a VP at Amazon, where he launched multiple businesses and led organizations around the globe. During his Amazon career, Steve spent time as the country manager for Amazon UK and Amazon China, in addition to leading roles in North American retail expansion and the rollout of international consumer programs. Before Amazon, Steve was a senior executive at a traditional retailer, a consultant at McKinsey & Company, and a staff reporter and foreign correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. Since leaving Amazon in 2020, Steve now serves as an advisor, consultant, and board member for companies who want to connect with today's customers. Steve, welcome to the show. Hi, Tyler. It's good to join you today. It's my pleasure to have you. At a little over 20 years, you are one of the more tenured guests that we've had on the show, and I've got stars in my eyes just looking at your bio and your background and all of the incredible things that you were able to be a part of at Amazon over two decades So to start there and to give listeners a bit more context, tell us more about yourself and your career journey at Amazon. Yeah, just to back up a second, I'll give you a little highlights of what I did before that. It was actually my fourth job out of college. My first job, as you said, I was a reporter and foreign correspondent for the Wall Street Journal in the U.S. and Mexico and Central America. Then I got my MBA worked at McKinsey for five years, ended up specializing in the retail practice, which led me to a job at a traditional retailer. And one of the many things I did there was launching their e-commerce site in 99 at the height of the internet bubble. So it got me very excited about e-commerce. I was kind of looking around for my next thing anyway. I thought if I found the right company in the right place, I would really take a look at it. And one thing led to another. I got this amazing offer to join Amazon, which I thought was going to be really one of the winners of e-commerce. It was working for the general manager of music, Jen Cast, who's a terrific person. So it was Amazon, it was Jen Cast, and I was going to be director of product management for the music store selling CDs. And that was my dream job because as a kid, I was super involved in music. I was actually a music major when I went to college. So I thought, this is it. This is my life's accomplishment to go to work at Amazon and work on the music store and ship my very large collection of CDs and final albums out to Seattle. I thought I'd made it. That was my dream job. So then to talk about the Amazon journey, I arrive at Amazon in late 99 and my dream job lasted exactly five weeks. So five weeks in, Jen comes to me and says, hey, there's this other job that might be a better fit for you, and the country manager role is open in the UK. And so I talked to my family, and we agreed to take a sharp swerve to the right, and we went to London instead of settling in Seattle. I spent my first two years at Amazon UK. At that point, Amazon UK was about a year old. And Amazon had Amazon in Germany and the UK and was just starting to think about France and Japan. 
and was in the UK for all the internet bust and all the press and, and stress over about whether the internet was dead and whether Amazon would collapse. All that happened while I was in the UK. So then just to continue the journey, came back to the US in 2001. I spent 10 years then on the North American team. My first role was I was head of what was then known as ETK. ETK stood for Electronics, Tools, Toys, and Kitchen. And that was basically all non-media businesses. So Amazon had books and music and video, but then everything else they were trying to do, which was still kind of a, a pretty small minority, the company called ETK. And so then over that next 10 years was very involved in helping Amazon expand beyond that. So I helped build the teams and manage eight or 10 new categories from home, office supplies, musical instruments, gourmet food, personal care, jewelry and pets food got launched as a little category within pets. So I helped build those teams. My role shifted around. I did a number of different special things like the launch of private brands at Amazon. The first Amazon private brand was called Strathwood. It was a little project within the home store. And that's where private brands came from. People think it was Amazon Basics, but it was actually started in the home category before it went over to electronics. I managed the hardline teams in Japan for a while. I got very involved when Jeff Wilkie came over to retail in leading the category manager leadership training program. Did that for a couple of years as kind of a side project, got involved with MBA recruiting, college graduate recruiting, a lot of those special projects. And by the end of that period, I was really focusing on two new categories, auto parts, which was small and has grown into a big successful business. And the other was we had acquired a B2B company called Small Parts. We evolved that into a category we call business and industrial supplies. And that sort of became the foundation of Amazon's B2B strategy. I hired a great guy named Prentice Wilson, who took that over and we relaunched that as Amazon Supply, a separate website that was dedicated to the B2B customer. And then Prentice eventually grew that and, and rebuilt that as what today is known as Amazon Business. And so but that started with that little kernel of launching the BIS category. Whereby. So that's kind of 10 years in Seattle. Then in 2012, I left the U.S. again. I went to China for three years, lived in Beijing, was country manager for Amazon China, came back to Seattle in 2015. For a few months, I was Jeff Bezos's shadow or technical assistant or TA as it's known at Amazon. So that was a great way to get reacquainted with Jeff's, the S-team, everything going on at Amazon. And then in the middle of 2015, I just rejoined the international team. I had three responsibilities. One was launching Amazon Business International. So over the next four years or so, we launched it in five countries in Europe, Japan, Canada, and India. My second responsibility was managing Brazil. That was just books when it got started. And then we grew that into a full Amazon website to where they now have everything. And then the third thing I did the last couple of years is I was asked to take responsibility for private brands just to bring that full circle because private brands had grown quite a bit. North America had stepped on the accelerator earlier and stronger it was starting to happen around the world with various teams doing consumables, fashion, and hard lines. And I took that over and spent a couple of years helping those teams double down on the early success they were having and grow even more. And then the very last thing I did was tell my boss about nine months before I left that I was going to retire. And he gave me several months to restructure those teams and find everybody new homes so I could take off. 
Well, that is an impressive career. I'm smiling as I listen to this because you were a pioneer in so many of these different businesses that in some way downstream impacted my experience at Amazon as well. So it's fun to hear these early beginnings in launching or expanding many of these programs. Steve, one of the things that undoubtedly is unique in your background is you spend a lot of time internationally, both living internationally, Amazon UK, Amazon China, as well as in some of these international program expansion roles. And having joined Amazon very early, how did Amazon learn to expand abroad in those early days? And was there anything unique to that approach that another business could learn from and how Amazon went about expanding beyond a U.S. business? Well, first of all, I think what happened early is pretty different than the way it's being done now. So Amazon launched in 10 countries in its first 15 years and then has done, I think, another 10 countries in the last five years. So the pace of expansion has picked up quite a bit. But to focus on the first part of your question is in the early years, again, when I got there, it was a year old. So it wasn't quite the beginning, but I guess looking back now, it's pretty close. And really the focus became, let's double down on what we've started and make sure we get it right. And a lot of that is the influence of Diego Piacentini, who came to Amazon in January or February of 2000 and took over international. Diego had great experience, particularly at Apple, where he'd managed a lot of global businesses. And the internet was new. At that time frame, the internet bubble was crashing. There was a lot of doubts about Amazon's survival and all that, not internally, but externally. And Diego saw that we had been debating everything. And he really got the team to focus on a couple big opportunities. And so really is let's get UK right. Let's get Germany right. Let's launch France and Japan. And then that was international for several years. And he was very focused on making sure we got that right. And so we could build from that and eliminate extraneous projects, focus on the basics, build out Amazon. We, of course, had the advantage of being able to watch what was happening in Seattle. So so we would let Seattle try things. And if it worked, we would bring them international. But I think that point about focusing the first couple of years is really key. So you talked about the importance of getting it right in these first four international markets, UK, Germany, and then France and Japan. What did getting it right look like in those days? Were there particular success metrics or milestones that you wanted to see before deciding to expand further? I think it was really nailing the basics and realizing that there was a customer obsession, but getting selection out there, being competitive on price, getting the right vendors, great customer service. That Amazon playbook works and getting the teams to focus on that playbook. And then importantly, in e-commerce is scale. So unlike somebody who's got a software business where it's a matter of deploying software around the world or a digital business that maybe you can do quickly, remember in e-commerce, there's a lot of real estate. (laughs) There's like warehouses and there's offices and there's customer service centers and there's local vendors and local relationships and local stuff. And so that's pretty expensive to build. So you've got to be careful about how you build scale and make sure you understand the pace of change because you're going to lose money your first several years and you can only bite off so many of these before you move to the next one. So I think getting that balance right was pretty important. 
So it sounds like there's an, an element of realizing those economies of scale from those early capital expenditures to financially prove that you can now go fund a new country where you're going to have to be investing a lot of money up front to launch that subsequent country. Right. And so everybody knew the path. I think one of the mistakes still I see people make, but certainly in the early years, people looking from the outside would say, well, Amazon isn't making money. They don't have to make money. I mean, nothing could be further than the truth. Amazon always had a really good sense of its economics and what was making money and what was not. But what Amazon is focused on is if I understand the path I'm on, I don't have to reach profitability for then launching another path. So it's not so much that Amazon had to wait for everything to be profitable before it did the next thing. It was much more that Amazon had to understand they had the path figured out and that if we were on the right path, it's time to start opening other countries because we know this path is going to work as opposed to, wait, we got to earn back every cent we've invested in the first four countries before we move to the next one. So that ability to look at long-term future cash flows is important. You don't have to cross the finish line before you start a parallel race to go win another race. I like tying in the working backwards principle at Amazon. It's that future forecasting of those cash flows to know we're on track to be at point Y in the future. We can start thinking about what to do in other markets or what comes next. Yeah. And if you're comfortable that several things you're working on are going to work out, it's okay to take on the next challenge because you you don't have to wait and you shouldn't be too slow. You should go ahead and do it. Because in the meantime, you're always working on stuff that isn't going to work. It's going to fail. And you've got to be able to contain that and measure that and, and not have that blow up the company. And that's part of Amazon too. You try a few things, you fail and you move on. And from a customer standpoint, I imagine there's a balance here between applying a template that has been proven and works in terms of selection and site experience, et cetera, in a market like the US to these new countries versus creating a, a new template that's highly localized and specific to the new country or market. How did you think about having the right judgment and evaluating or prioritizing those decisions? I think that's one of the most important things that international teams have to learn to do. And it's really the principle of our right a lot because it's hard to have the perfect answer. I think my team sometimes got frustrated with me because I would say, look, this is all about our right a lot. And you're really only supposed to do two things. One is copy everything from North America exactly because it works pretty well. And the second is don't copy the things that aren't going to work. And people would say, okay, I don't really get that. Like, if I'm supposed to copy everything, how do I know what I'm not supposed to copy? And I would say, well, that's the job. You've got to be right a lot about what you copy and what you don't copy. And it can be hard. So I think about it in several different buckets. The first bucket is all the stuff that's got to be local, language, currency, laws, regulation, who your suppliers are, where the fulfillment centers are having local customer service, paying your taxes and all that. So there's just no debate. You've got to be there and you've got to be local. And that's work. That's a lot of work. The second bucket is adjustments you might have to do on what the customer's expectations are due to competition. And so the competition may not be there. They may be great. They may not be good. And as an example, in China, by the time I got there, the big competitors had moved to next day shipping free in all the major cities. And we were matching that. We were really good at that. When next day shipping is free, 
in all the major cities, Prime is not news. You know, you can't really say, hey, for $100 a year, would you like free shipping next day? Because basically the market in China had given away Prime. And so you do have adjustments like that about what's the pricing intensity and all that to think about. So that's going to give you some to-dos. Bucket number three, I would say, is a bunch of stuff where I would say, especially in the early days of Amazon, we got a little bit distracted. And bucket number three is the very top of mind visual design or visual customer changes that you feel like you're making good changes for customers, but can be a distraction. Like, let's redesign the homepage or the horizontal nav bar should be slightly thicker or slightly thinner or the drop down is different or whatever. Some of those are always good debates, but a lot of times there isn't perfect anyway, and you've got a template from North America and you should just grab it. But a, a lot of those changes I just felt in the early years could be distractions. And I think that was some of my coaching from Diego as well. And maybe I was guilty of that too. Like, hey, I'm in the UK and we do things a little bit differently than Germany. A lot of that superficial stuff is not going to matter as much as you think. You can come back and test it later and and you should probably skip over that. The fourth bucket can really be important and that's very detailed customer behaviors that sometimes business people don't pay attention to. And I think maybe the biggest example at Amazon is always payments. Like when you're launching new countries, you're thinking like, oh yeah, we're going to take credit cards or whatever. When you really get into country-specific payments methods, they're pretty unique. I was in a meeting once where we had some screwed up payment stuff and we were trying to fix it. And Jeff was in the room and Jeff said something like removing payments friction is one of the most important things you have to do. And the customer gets to define convenience. So we can't tell the customer that this credit card is more convenient. That's credit card in that country that that customer already has a method of paying. You've got to pay attention to that. And for whatever reason, I think sometimes new teams don't pay attention to that. So focusing on that was good. And there's many examples around the world where Amazon takes payment and the payment mix is different than what it is in North America, whether it's in Japan where customers pay for their orders, which is very typical in Japan to pay in cash at a convenience store because Japanese, I think even today, do not use credit cards as much as they do in other countries. In Germany, I think customers are more in favor of bank transfers, direct bank debit than credit cards. In Brazil, you have this financing, buy now, pay later financing method where you you pay something, you pay it over six months or 10 months. It's just very, very typical in Brazil. And then in other countries, it's cash on demand. I think Amazon is still taking cash on delivery in the Mideast, cash on delivery we took in China. And you wouldn't do that in the U.S. So that's an example of diving down deep into customer behaviors that may not seem glamorous or obvious, but you have to do it. That became a really good model for Amazon business because a lot of the things we had to do to roll Amazon business around the world was that kind of stuff. There was not so much the first 10 seconds you see when you log on to the site and how does the site work and all that. That might be more fun to play around with, but some of the guts was more important. I really liked that framework of deciding what to copy and what not to copy and considering these different buckets along that dimension, as well as what is priority for day one versus what it can wait. And that's not going to move the needle so much at day of launch. And I can see how that framework can also be used in Amazon business or another geography. 
these other programs all need that component of what from the core business should we copy and what needs to be different and how should we think through the importance of the customer. I imagine, Steve, being involved in these launches at really early points in Amazon's history, that there must have been some mistakes and some failures. Were there any notable failures that disconfirmed early beliefs or assumptions that were held in the early days? You know, I have to say, in looking back from the early years, I can't think of major disasters. And I actually tell people, I think Amazon's success in the early years is amazing. In my earlier job in traditional retail, I was in charge of international expansion. And we'd studied the expansion plans of every American retailer we could think of and what they'd done globally and all that. And a lot of traditional retailers had failed when they went abroad. And Amazon had a lot of huge early successes, and particularly Japan. I always think what Amazon did in Japan gets a ton of credit because it's a great team, a great brand, a great customer experience. That being said, we made a lot of mistakes. But you have to make mistakes early and make mistakes that aren't fatal. And I'll just give you one type of mistake is real estate. It's one of the hardest things to get right. If you're not used to managing a new, fast-growing business that's growing 100% or 300% a year to forecast how big it's going to get, because you know if something grows 300% a year, it's going to be pretty darn big pretty fast, but you know the growth rate's going to go from 300 to 100 to 80 to 60 to 40 or whatever. But exactly how that works has a huge impact on your projections. And one of the things that was hard to get right is real estate. And so when I arrived in the UK, we were building this enormous warehouse, and it proved to be way too big for what we needed anytime soon. We were bleeding cash, and we had to build a wall down the middle of the warehouse, and we subleased half the warehouse. And we wrote off a lot of the construction in one other part of the warehouse because it was just well beyond what we needed. It wasn't really stupid to build the warehouse, so I'm not faulting anyone, but it just was way bigger than what we needed. Amazon had been debating European expansion strategies. And one philosophy was having a big corporate headquarters in Hague with international expansion. And that kind of went away, but we went ahead and decided we were going to put a customer service center in the Hague. We started looking at the numbers. It was just way too big. We weren't going to use it. The Hague wasn't the right place. If you were doing business in France, Germany, and UK, you didn't need a place in the Hague. We weren't having success hiring the right people. And we closed it after 10 months. And the example that I think all the European teams went to is we started with pretty inexpensive office locations far from the city center. And over time, when some countries faster, some countries slower, that proved not to be a great decision. It looked like you were saving money in the short term, but over the long term, it was a hard place to hire people to. And as you start needing more and more people and a certain kind of talent doesn't really want to commute, they're going to live in the center city in some of these great cities And them commuting out to the far suburbs, in some cases, just was not a great recruiting decision. And so over time, Amazon moved those back into much more convenient locations and better for hiring. The really critical resource, which is talent. And so those are early growing pains, I would say, not so much disasters. I think those are pretty illustrative of some of the challenges I would anticipate entering a new market in terms of the population density, real estate, travel, delivery to customers, and then those resources, labor and those other key resources. I think it's remarkable that there weren't any fatal mistakes with how ambitious some of these expansions have been. Maybe to juxtapose that, 
with some of your later roles expanding programs such as Amazon Business internationally. How did those challenges in the later years differ from some of these early challenges in international expansion? In the early years, it was much more about can we do this and can we do it in a scrappy way and just get started? Over time, as Amazon became a bigger global brand and a bigger presence in people's brains, I think the bar went up for what we could launch with. So in the early years, Amazon launched with books only, and that got everything going. And then you would build from books and add everything up. In the later launches, if you look at the launches from 2016, 17 onwards, those countries have all launched with 8, 10, 12 categories on day one. The bar has gone up. Everybody in Australia or Turkey or Mexico knows what Amazon is. And it would be really disappointing to the customer if you said, hey, we're here. You should be happy. By the way, do you want a book? And it just wasn't enough. And so the bar kept going up for what a launch should look like. And I'm now on the outside, but looking at their recent launches, I'm just super impressed with how much they're able to deliver. And I would say the second thing that's changed is as the pace of global expansion has improved for Amazon, I think now the team is thinking more about multiple countries as they're launching one country, and it just allows you to be more efficient. So one of the big eye-openers for me was in 2015 when I got the mandate to launch Amazon Business internationally at the S-Team meeting where that mandate was delivered. Jeff said something I then quoted for years when we ran into obstacles. It's like, look, this is going to work everywhere. Let's not debate it. We might debate the pace, but we're really going to do this. Let's go. And when you have that as your beginning marching orders, just everything you do, you're thinking about multiple countries as you go. So when you think about how am I going to pull the data for finance and what's that data cube look like and how do I organize the team and how do we organize our approach to customers? If you're thinking about multiple countries, it makes it so much better. By the way, some of the digital businesses now at Amazon are expanding faster, like digital music and Prime Video, because those are digital products. They could launch globally faster than physical. But the highlight to me was the week we were in Munich to launch Amazon Business in Germany. The German team had hired about three quarters of the team, so it was pretty well staffed at launch week. And I felt pretty good about that. But in the room with us was half the UK team. The UK team was launching about six or nine months later, and they were already on the job. And they were in Munich, side by side with the Munich team, helping them launch. And also in the room, we'd hired the first two people from Japan, which was going to launch in a year, but it was time to get started. So we actually had two visitors from Japan observing. We had the colonel of the UK team with their sleeves rolled up, helping to work, and we had most of the Munich team. And so the fact that as you rolled out, the new teams all had seen what had happened in the earlier countries just made those launches a ton smoother than they otherwise would have been. I really like that because just as a postmortem or a COE or all these other mechanisms Amazon has to disseminate learnings across the company, having those from Japan, from Munich, the UK, all together to see what that launch looked like, help disseminate that learning quickly, knowing that these launches were coming. 
Steve, what advice would you have for businesses today that might be thinking about expanding internationally for the first time? My first response is do it and look hard at your talent and look for talent that has global exposure, global experience. It's, by the way, one of the greatest things you can do in your own career is live abroad. I've done it three times now and it was awesome for me. But look for talent who've got that kind of experience. I do think this question of the kind of business are you in and and knowing up front what you think the pace of expansion is going to be, if you're a totally digital business and you think, hey, this might go from five countries to 25 countries pretty quickly, I think is going to get you to think about this differently than if you're more of a physical base where you've got to have warehouses and infrastructure in every country, you're going to go get slower and you might do more the approach of let's commit ourselves really hard to doing two countries and then stop and think about it. I think just making that basic decision, is it two countries in five years or 25 countries in three years? Having a hypothesis about that before you get started, I think will shape a lot about your talent, your org structure, your tech infrastructure, the investments you make is almost the most important decision I would make first. For anyone listening that might be thinking about future expansion, I loved your point there about having that plan for what you will be doing or what you expect to do and and start planning for that now. And that's where we'll leave the conversation this week. Next week, be sure to tune in to the rest of the conversation with Steve. We'll hear about the metric that was magical to Amazon's expansion, how shifting more attention to business inputs unlocks potential, and the litmus test for knowing when you've identified the right input metrics for your team. Until next week.